Good morning. Man, am I surprised to see you. I told you I was going to preach on giving. You forgot. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to uh, Malachi 3. Malachi 3, verses 6 to 12. Let me just tell you a little bit about where we're going, because this is kind of a strange month. So I did two messages last week and this week. Last week was more on hard work and not getting in debt, and this week is more on giving. And then next week is Mother's Day and wasn't sure what to preach, and my friend Andrew, always helpful, said, why not Romans 16? Go read that this afternoon, because that's my Mother's Day text, and you'll say, you gotta be kidding me. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Uh, Romans 16 is Mother's Day. And then the week after that, uh, my friend Josh Reese is going to preach, at least at the uh, Wausau campus. Josh and I are exchanging pulpits. I'm going to go up to uh, St. Germain Rhinelander. That is a place where uh, we help them to plant a multi-site that is doing really quite well in the Rhinelander area. And uh, the two churches uh, went in on that multi-site, but it is then given just to them. So I haven't been up there and he's never been here. So we're swapping pulpits. And then we have Grad Sunday where uh, Jared and Andrew and I are preaching together. And then I'm gonna go back to Colossians for a while. So kind of a little potpourri for five weeks. And uh, this is week two. Let's uh, bow in a word of prayer. Father God, as we look at your passage, your text in Malachi 3, I would not want to preach it incorrectly. I would not want it to come across as a manipulative text. But what it is, your inspired and errant word given to us that we might live in a manner that is pleasing to you. Allow me to say what is right and for us to hear what is right and to respond in a way that is honoring. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Probably a number of you know the name John D. Rockefeller Sr. If you know the name John Rockefeller, you know that he was one of the barons. The barons were the individuals who essentially were the masterminds that built this country in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So John Rockefeller planted Standard Oil and due to the Sherman Act from 1890, the anti-monopoly laws, Standard Oil was actually broken up by the courts into 34 different companies in 1911. What was John D. Rockefeller like? Well, he's a married man, incredibly moral and ethical. But what was he like depends on the historian you read and you believe. I'll tell you a little bit about this man. He started a country or a company and it went big and went powerful. If you worked for him, 
He said you were a member of the Standard Oil family. He paid you quite a bit above normal wages. And he had one of the safest work environments, not terribly safe, but one of the safest work environments of his era. He is either a villain or a hero, depending on what you think of unions. He fought the unionization of Standard Oil and was heavily against it, but again, paid a very substantial wage. He was an individual that grew up in the church. He was a lifelong Baptist. He was a man that had his company broken up because he was involved in predatory practices and he colluded with the railroads to put out a number of businesses. So on the one hand, he was a shrewd businessman. On the other hand, he was rather ruthless and people lost their companies because of him. So he's a conglomerate, a mixture of godliness and a little less than that in the workforce. He was an individual who grew up in a very broken home. He was asked by a reporter, do you tithe? Now I'm gonna tell you why he was asked that. He was asked that because he's the wealthiest American in history. In 1911, he owned $900 million. That's a buying power of almost a half a trillion dollars today. Musk has a buying power of a quarter trillion. Bezos has a buying power of about 151. Bill Gates has a buying power of about $107 billion. All of these are billions. So you put those three together and they're pretty close to the buying power of John Rockefeller. And so he was asked, you're always preaching, you're always citing scripture, which he did. Do you actually tithe? Do you give a tenth off the top? Well, I can tell you the answer is he gave more than that. He actually gave $200 billion in buying power of today to the church and then to medicine and then to the academy. But he wanted to answer the question, so I'm gonna answer it the way he did. He said, let me answer the question about my childhood and then I'll answer your question. You know I grew up in a tough home. My dad was a polygamist and an absentee father and he left my mother and me penniless. And so at a very young age, I had to start work. And at the end of my first week of work, I got my first paycheck and it was $1.50. I gave it to my mom and she said, I'd be very happy if you gave 10% of that to the Lord. And that's the beginning, John. You are to give more as God blesses you. And so he gave off the top from his $1.50 when his mother and he could not meet their bills. He said, if I had not given that first tithe, I probably wouldn't have tithed my first million. But because my mom trained me, I continued that practice, my wife and I, for all of our lives. Then he gave a little theological lesson. He said, parents teach your kids at a young age to give the first fruits of their income because if they learn at a young age, it'll carry on 
in their older years. A couple passages he regularly cited. One I read last week from 1 Timothy 6.10. The love of money is a root of all evil. Of course, he cited the other translation that was wrong. He said the root of all evil, but we know that's wrong. Love of money is a root of all evil. He also cited Luke 6.38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. I remember my first job, my real first job. I think I was nine, but I might have been 10, but I'm pretty sure I was nine in retrospect. And I started working at a farm and I had the opportunity to pick peas and beans and uh, four pecks to a bushel and for a bushel, which took me most of the day, I was paid $1.50. That's what I got. Now, John Rockefeller got $1.50 in a week. I got $1.50 for however long it took me to pick a bushel of peas most of the day. And we would do that. And then uh, beans. And then if I did six or seven days of peas and beans... For one day, actually for like one hour, I got to pick tomatoes because you can make a lot of money picking tomatoes. So they would reward me for all the beans and the peas by picking tomatoes and that was like the big paycheck of the week or the month. And my parents modeled giving the first fruits of their income and Betty Ann's parents modeled giving the first fruits of their income And so that was the model we grew up in. It became second nature. So I would agree that what John Rockefeller said is true. We ought to train the generations to put the Lord first. And when we model that and when we train them, then they imitate that model. Well, a passage that was very powerful to me as a youngster, I think my dad shared it with me is Malachi 3, 6 to 12. And so I want to share it with you. For I, the Lord, do not change. That's the immutability, the unchangeability of God. We read that he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We read that four times in scripture. And if you come to the immutability of God, the unchangeable nature of God, the question you and I ought to ask is, why is it in that text? This is a text on giving. The other three, it's real clear why it's in the text. We've got to ask why in a text on giving are we taught the immutability, the unchangeable nature of God? You got to answer that question because verses aren't just thrown haphazardly into a text. Let me continue. If I can find my text. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. When we get to Jacob, we could say, oh, that's synonymous with Israel, and sometimes it is. Or we can assume, and rightly so, that he is using the word Jacob for what its Hebrew word actually means. And we'll talk about that in a moment. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Seems a little tough, so I looked that word, kabah, 
up. We'll talk about that in a moment. Well, man robbed God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe, which actually means tenth, into the storehouse, which is the word for local church or synagogue, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. That should astound you, because God gives tests, we take tests. But here he's saying, put him to the test. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine and the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You and I are in the book of Malachi. I don't know how familiar the book of Malachi is to you. It's the last book of the Old Testament. And essentially it is six oracles. You can summarize it. I did actually in your notes and it'll be up in PowerPoint in a moment. You can summarize the book by six oracles. Now the interesting thing is I just simplified the book, but it's not a simple book. It's actually all about the coming Messiah. It's all about the messenger of chapter 3, verse 1, who is Jesus. It's all about Elijah, chapter 4, verse 5, which is John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord for Jesus. The book of Malachi is preparing Old Testament saints for New Testament church living. That's what the book is all about. You've been in the Old Testament. You're about to leave the Old Testament. How ought you to live? Here are six oracles that ought to be in your life looking forward or looking back on the Redeemer when you're in the church age. These six oracles are how you and I ought to conduct our lives. So what are the oracles? The first is evangelism. When we have been recipients of salvation, when we have by faith believed in Christ, when we have accepted Christ as our personal Savior and Lord, we have the joy of telling others how they too can come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So the first oracle is evangelism. The second is authenticity. This isn't even a word for most of you. This word is for me because it's written to pastors. It's saying, don't you dare preach what you're not gonna live. Don't you dare proclaim what you're not empowered by God's spirit trying to implement in your life. God has had enough of false preachers. He's had enough of false teachers. There's gotta be authenticity on behalf of those who lead the church. Third oracle, fidelity. Whatever marriage you're in, or if you're going to get married sometimes in the future, Stay in that marriage, work at that marriage, pray for that marriage, invest in that marriage. God desires us to be faithful to our marriage. The fourth is recompense. A day is coming, the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, Romans 14, a day is coming when you, I, we will have to give an account for how we lived our lives before God. 
No condemnation, Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ Jesus, but blessings for those who live faithfully and a loss of reward for those who do not. The fifth oracle, the one we'll look at today, is stewardship of money. We are not owners. We are stewards entrusted with what God owns. And are we using what God owns in a way that God will be pleased with it? And finally, stewardship of time. We have been given time by God. We have been given spiritual gifts and talents by God. Are we living in such a way that he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into my rest. Now, I just made Malachi seem really easy, six oracles. I got to tell you, this is a really hard book. And I don't know what overcame me, but I graduated from seminary. And in seminary, I, I preached almost every week in different churches, especially the last couple years. And, and I don't know, I, I did Second Peter. I don't know what overcame me there. And then I thought, well, I'll do Malachi as my first book. Terrible choice. Terribly complex. I haven't gone back there since. It's, it's a hard book, but it's really six oracles. And it's how you live in the church. Prepare yourself for the coming of the messenger, chapter 3-1. Prepare yourself for Elijah making the way of the Lord, Jesus. And this is how we live as New Testament believers. So how does giving fit into this model? And by the way, verse 6 starts with, I, the Lord, changeth not. The immutability of God. One of only four times we are given this teaching in Scripture. Three are so easy to understand. Why at the beginning of a passage on giving are we told that God is unchanging? He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is immutable. He does not change. Why here? Why now? I think the answer is very clear. God knows that when we are in the church age, we're going to say, oh, that's an Old Testament teaching and we're going to dismiss it. That's why God starts with the immutability that he doesn't change. We do. We shouldn't, but we do. And so what he says about giving in Malachi is also a New Testament principle because that's a book written to the church age. Prepare the way of the messenger. The Elijah is preparing the way of the Lord. And I, the Lord, changeth not. And the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Notice also that he talks about them being like Jacob. God is one way, Jacob is another now, Jacob, in some texts, is synonymous with the Jews. We know that we are talking about Judah because Israel, the northern tribes, disappeared, right, in 722. They were taken over by Assyria. Many of them intermarried. Half Jew, half Assyrian is where we get Samaritan. A million strong in the time of Jesus, about 850 today. Most of them living around Mount Gerizim. But for the most part, actually entirely, the 10 northern tribes have disappeared. We know they're around because they're coming back in Revelation 7. We just can't identify who they are. But the two southern tribes were Judah and 
a name for the, the Jews of Judah was Jacob. So it could have been synonymous. He's just saying, oh, Jews, but that's not what he's doing. He's using Jacob pejoratively. He's using it in a negative light because the word Jacob means grasper. It means somebody who holds on to what they shouldn't hold on to. Allow your mind to go back to Genesis 27. And Jacob is born second. He's a twin. Esau is born first. And because he's born first, in those days he got the birthright, which gave him a double inheritance. And remember, Jacob swindled his brother out of the birthright. He grasped what was not his. Remember how he was born in Genesis 25? This is how he got his name. His brother came out of the birth canal first and Jacob is holding onto his ankle is almost to pull him back in the birth canal so he can get out first and he can get the inheritance right. That's how the author understands what's going on in the birth canal. And so he is called the grasper, the one who swindles what is not rightfully his. That's what God says some of his people are doing. They're failing to give the first fruits of their income to the Lord. And he says, you're swindling me. And Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 21. He said that where your treasure is, there your heart should be. Or the other way around, where your heart is, your treasure should go as well. That's what God desires for his people. But you say, well, all right. But context matters. We don't know much about Malachi. Tell us the context. Well, it's a 5th century BC document. It's written about 450 years before the coming of Christ. It's written during an economic downturn. They're not doing well. Inflation is rising. There's few jobs. Prosperity doesn't exist. Remember what happened. In 605 BC and in 586 BC, Babylon came and ransacked Judah. And because God had said to the Jews, six years you can till the soil and the fields, the seventh year leave it fallow. We know that this is actually wise in their time. We do crop switching now to not pull all the nutrients out. God just said, uh, you till the soil for six years, leave it fallow for one year. I'll take care of the one year. I'll provide for you. The people said, we don't trust God. And so for 490 years, they tilled the land. And God said, let's see, 490 divided by seven. Every seventh year is mine. That's 70 years. You're going to be carried into captivity. And for 70 years, they were carried into captivity. Especially the nobles and the owners Anyone who had any wealth, they were taken away. First under Babylon, later under the Medo-Persian Empire. Everything they owned, they lost. And now they've come back. They come back with Nehemiah in 444 BC. They come back with Ezra and Zerubbabel and Haggai. And they're, they're building the wall with Nehemiah. And they're building the temple just before that with, with Ezra. They're building these things. But they've lost everything. They've lost everything. It's an economic downturn. And the passage begins, I the Lord changeth not. 
My standards have not changed. Whether you have prosperity or whether you're in difficult times, my standards have not changed. I'm an immutable, unchanging God. And so God encourages them. He encourages us to hold loosely what God has entrusted to us. We are stewards, not owners. He says this in verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes. You have not kept them. In other words, it's very easy to say Jesus is Lord. It's very easy to claim that God is on the altar of our lives. It's very easy for me to get up and preach. It's more difficult for us to live out the passage. But God doesn't change. And he wants us to hold loosely what he has entrusted to us. And so he says in verse 7, Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Yesterday is gone. Today is here. Yesterday, we may have held tightly. What will we do today? How will we respond? The text is really clear. Return to me, I will return to you. And how do they respond? Instead of saying yes, they say how. Talk about an insincere question. God already told them how. Repent, return. But they don't like it. It's kind of like what happens when I read a passage of scripture I don't like in my life and I try and find other meanings than what it actually says. Or when I listen to someone preach, like, like you are today, and you hear something you don't like and, and in us wells all sorts of reasons why what we're hearing is not true or what we're hearing does not apply. And that's exactly what's going here. God said, return to me and I will return to you. And they said, how? How have we wronged you, God? It would have been nice if they hadn't asked the question because God, God answers it. Verse eight. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So I thought that was a little over the top. So I looked up the word rob, kaba. And I discovered that's not a great translation. It's okay. I think it's actually a little stronger. It means plunder. Rob means I just take from somebody. Plunder has a little bit of spite involved in it. That's what the text says. We plunder God if we don't give to a storehouse, which by the way is always the local synagogue or church, verse 10. Equally difficult. God reiterates that he's speaking to their whole nation. It's very interesting. I would have expected when I looked up the word nation to find am or ami. When God talks about the Jews, it's always ami, my people. It's a term of endearment. Like if I were to talk about Betty Ann, she's ami, she's my people. But that's not the term used. It's the word goy. And I learned something this week from uh, my friend Joe Aldridge. He always looks up my Greek and Hebrew words and uh, then gently comes in and says, I don't know about that, Jeff. Uh, uh, he, he helps me out a lot. But I knew that goy was pejorative, but he found something I didn't know. He discovered that in the Pentateuch, the first five books, goy is just a morally neutral term. But the closer you get to the New Testament, the more pejorative this word actually becomes. So it goes from 
somewhat morally neutral to stronger and stronger pejorative. We're in the last book of the Old Testament. It's a pejorative term. And God is not saying, I'm me, my people. He's saying, goy, people who are not acting like my people. I want to make a parenthetical remark. I do not believe Malachi 3 was written to balance budgets. I don't believe that's why it was written. And our budget is balanced. So I'm not trying to manipulate you at all. I'm not worried about my next paycheck. It's not going to bounce. Jeff Weiss is mine. Mine is not going to bounce. <laughs> it's going to be there. I'm not really worried about that. This is a hard issue. God does not need your money. He doesn't need my money. Psalm 50 verse 10 says, The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In the first hour, I lied and said I've been pastoring 35 years, and I stood by the door and started counting. I think I've been pastoring 31 years. But in 31 years, we finished in the black 31 years. That's not because of me, and it's not because some God-honoring churches won't finish in the red, but that's not been my experience. And this isn't going to be any different this year. We're going to finish in the black. But this isn't a budget issue. This is a heart issue. This is my heart before the Lord. This is your heart before the Lord. This is a heart issue. It really isn't a budget issue. And the text says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now that's the end of the first part of verse 10. You can say, good, we're past that. But I think the next two phrases are the most difficult for me because I don't want to be misunderstood. Let me read again verse 10. It says this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. We're done with that. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I don't want to be misunderstood. We are not to walk around saying, Lord, I'm going to put you to the test. I'm going to put you to the test and we'll see if you can heal my loved one who is sick. I'm going to put you to the test and see if you can eradicate cancer in my loved one. I'm going to test you, God. Or Lord, I need a better job. I'm going to test you in this, God. We'll see if you're really God, if you get me that better job. God gives tests. We take tests. We have no right to apply this in any way other than the one way it is given in Scripture. And that's in how we hold on, steward what God has entrusted to us. God says, you can test me in that. But let's not walk around putting God to the test because God gives tests. We take tests. He is sovereign, we are not. Let's not confuse who we are before God. The second thing is I don't want you to think I'm a health, wealth, and prosperity theologian. I think that is all nonsense. Give to my Learjet fund and God will give you a bigger house and a better car and more money. That's heresy. What the text is saying is something like this. 
if I am faithful in what God has entrusted to me, God may very well allow me more abundance than I might have had. Or if I am faithful with what God has entrusted to me, some of my relationships that I want to work on might actually have God's blessing and stamp on them and there will be some improvement. Or my 35,000 mile radial tires will have 40,000 miles of tread before I'm done. Or, and fill in the blank, I think what's going to happen is this. Sometimes we're going to see what God does in our lives and we're going to say, praise you, Lord. And sometimes we're going to get to heaven and we're going to have a lot of aha moments. Oh my. I actually went further in my career than I might have because you were so gracious to me with the little bit I stewarded towards you. And we see God's hand in our lives and we have all of these aha moments. I don't believe he offers health, wealth, prosperity. I think that's an abuse of scripture. But he does tell us that if we hold, not grasp, what he has entrusted to us, we steward well, and he gets the first fruits of what he has entrusted to us, he will bring some supernatural plus from him into our lives. I want to close with a couple passages that I find to be very helpful. Matthew 23, 23 says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe, there's our word, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done. What ought you have done? The weightier matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Without neglecting the others. What are the others? Tithing your mint, dill, and cumin. I learned a few things from this text. First, there's something more important than what I give. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. I ought to be doing those, but I ought not to neglect what is less important. The tithing, even of things as silly as my mint, dill, and cumin. Did Jesus talk about a tithe? I just read it to us. Did Paul talk about a tithe? He did not. But he actually has the longest passage on giving in the Bible. It's actually part of my doctoral dissertation. I didn't choose it because of these two chapters. But 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 9, 6 and 8, he says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That doesn't mean you will be rich if you give and you'll be poor if you don't. It just means he's going to bring more blessing if you and I give and less blessing if we don't. That's what the deck says. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Perhaps you've heard that the word cheerful is the Greek word hilarious, so God loves a hilarious giver. That's clever, but I don't think that has anything to do with the Greek text. He just wants one to give based on gratitude for what he's done for us. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I want to close with the story of Danny Thomas. He died in 1991. He was an artist, a musician, a producer. He was also a humorist. I think the story must come from the 1950s. It's a guess. But he and his wife, Rosie, were expecting their first child. He went to church that Sunday. And at the moment, they owned exactly $7.85. That was all they owned in terms of money. They're going to have a baby in a week. They're having trouble buying groceries. And Danny said he was in church and he gives his obligatory $1 as the offering passes. He's one of those individuals who decided that he's going to give a certain amount of money, never changed it. He always gives $1. But that particular week, the pastor talked about a mission and decided to collect a second offering, something that I would not do. And in the second offering, he took the remaining $6.85 and put it in. And then he walked out of church and he thought, what have I done? What am I going to say to Rosie? Uh, we're about to have a baby and it's going to cost $70 to have this baby. I got to pay my bill at the end of next week or the end of the week. And he said, Lord, I just gave you $6.85. You're going to need to multiply that by 10. Monday morning comes and he gets a phone call. He's been out of work for a while and He's asked to be in a commercial, just a tiny little part. And they said, we're going to pay you $75. And he starts to whoop and holler. It's the biggest paycheck he's ever had in his life. And then he remembers he's on the phone. He says goodbye. And then he gets silent. He told God, I gave you an extra $685. I need 10 times. That's $68.50. And God gave him $75. God doesn't always work that way. Sometimes he does, but he doesn't always work that way. If you walk out of here today feeling manipulated by me, I have failed. I'm really not worried about my next check. But if you have walked out today saying, I love God, and part of how I love God is holding loosely what he has entrusted to me, and I'm a steward, not an owner. And you respond that way, then the text has spoken to your and my heart. Paul said he doesn't want us to give out of compulsion. If I give out of compulsion, my reward has been paid in full. But if I give out of gratitude for who God is, that's what God wants from me. That's what he wants from you. Let's pray. Father God, uh, help us to hold what you have entrusted to us loosely. Help us to be stewards. Help us to be filled with gratitude for who you are and all that you've done. And Father, uh, we're just thankful that we're able to give as a church so much to missions because people have graciously given to us. And if that were to increase, that would be a good thing. But Father, we want you to draw our hearts to you. 
That would be a better thing. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.